genre. Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez, runner. Today we are continuing our mini-series on the Matrix franchise with the first sequel released in May of 2003, The Matrix Reloaded. And we have a guest joining us to talk about exiled programs, highway fights, and cave raves is Loot and Bus <laughs> contributor Maeve Shade. Welcome, Maeve. Hello. Um, you could have also introduced me as Freeman Sentinel. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Um, so, so Maeve, uh, I just want to know sort of like what your, um, you know, what was the first time that you saw any of the Matrix films and, and sort of what your relationship with the franchise is? Well, I first saw the Matrix in a car, like on a car DVD player on my way to a... <laughs> a football college football game in like 2012 i had not seen it i had only just seen my first r-rated movie like two months before i was 15 and i lost my fucking mind (laughs) i had known about the matrix's place in pop culture but still seeing it for the first time that is something that sticks with me and I immediately declared it my favorite movie. I watched it every opportunity I got. And I initially was kind of like wary of the sequels because I didn't know that people were idiots back then and thought that the movies were bad. (laughs) Um, However, I eventually got over myself. I watched them and I continued to lose my mind. Like I am of the mindset that all the Matrix movies are five-star masterpieces. So... (laughs) There's that. The, the the sequels, I think the, the, the first movie is very accessible um, and, and I think by design. Uh, and then the sequels, you know, not wanting to repeat themselves. I think the Wachowskis wanted to do something a little more complex um, and a little more uh, of a higher difficulty. And I think that for a lot of people who love that, very easily accessible first film. I think the the um, the sequels were a lot more challenging and continue to be a challenge. Uh, apparently, um, so I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, Nick, do you remember the first time you saw Reloaded? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I I very much remember not only going to watch the movie in theaters back in '03, but I remember the promotional campaign leading up to the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 12. And I just remember, like, just the the QuickTime trailer for this blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it over and over again. I remember the Powerade commercials with the agent. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, this was just, like, the most hyped I had ever been for a movie. Yeah. Um, at least a non-Star Wars movie. Yeah. 
and watching this, I, I empathize with people who don't like this movie in the way that I remember watching this and it completely blowing me away and changing like my taste in movies and what I think is cool. Mm-hmm. But also some parts of it to a 12 year old were like really overwhelming and weird. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes like kind of boring and overwhelming. <laughs> sure. And I think this, I can't remember the last time I watched this movie. So it, it was really cool watching it kind of through the lens of an adult and being able to kind of not the children, but you know, like being able to kind of chew on the philosophy of the movie. And you're right. This is a really challenging movie, but I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I was so hyped for this movie in, in summer of 2003. Um, and going into that summer, knowing that like, this was just like the first one and then there was going to be a sequel in November. Like it was just 2003, you know, the year I graduated high school, but it was also the year of the matrix sequels. Um, that was, it was a very big deal. And then you put on top of that animatrix comes out in June, You've got uh, Enter the Matrix that came out like a couple of weeks after the movie, um, the first movie. And uh, and it was just, yeah, it was just all Matrix all the time that, that, that year. Um, and, you know, I, I saw this movie and I went into it wanting to like this movie. And I left refusing to acknowledge the fact that, like, I did not. I mean, I totally did not get this movie. Like, I mean, you know, like I tried my best um, and and I was not one of the people who was like shitting on it. Um, but like to say that this movie went over my head um, the first time I watched it is a total <laughs> understatement, <laughs> you know, and it's still it's still a challenging movie now. Like every time I watch it. I read all of this stuff, you know, and I'm sure we're going to talk about all of this, all of the stuff and the theories about who these characters are and, and what they do and what their purpose is and all of that stuff. And I'm really, really excited. Nick is wringing his hands. He can't wait. <laughs> but, um, but you know, when you're watching the movie, all of that stuff kind of goes out the window because it's just this overwhelming just wash of information. Um, and, you know, without all of that extra stuff, it is really hard to, like, I think, dig into. Um, but I'm really excited to to get into it. And hopefully... People who are listening to this, I'm hoping that if you don't like these sequels, um, I'm hoping that you'll listen to this and grow a new appreciation of them because I think there's a lot to love here, but they are very challenging and in not a way that like I think the people who don't like them are stupid. I just think like, well, you have to give it a chance. It's not the kind of movie that you could just watch once and be like, oh, yeah, dope. Um you know, I mean, I think for some people, maybe it is, but like, I'm definitely not one of those people. And it takes a lot of homework for me to like really dig into this movie. Um, but I'm excited to get into it. Um, so obviously the big thing here is that like, you know, development wise, it's not a super interesting tale because it's like the matrix was a mega hit. They're like, let's make a sequel better yet. Let's make two and like have them come out, you know, six months apart and tell one gigantic story over two movies um and everything was greenlit and like there were kind of no issues um the big thing is training for the first film was four months long training for this these films were eight months long um just eight months of not filming anything and just working on pre-production for the wachowskis while uh, all of the actors were in training for eight months eight months 
That is so long. <laughs> that is a long yeah. time of coming in every day and doing air kicks and learning choreography. Um, it is it's, it's a lot. Uh, so not if you you're know. Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, not for Lawrence Fishburne, obviously, because you know he's. Oh <laughs> uh, uh, God, the, that 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 cocky motherfucker! I I I I love it. I love watching him in all these behind the scenes things and just being like, "Yeah, no, I loved it. It was great." And everyone's like, "Wow, it was really hard." He's like, "No, it wasn't that hard for me. It was great." <laughs> he's the best. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so you know, it was a lot of that, and I think that. You know, you watch these interviews with the people who worked on these these sequels and they're like, yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, the ideas that they have and the concepts that they're dealing with are so amazing. And I think that all of them felt that way because the Wachowskis were explaining everything to them and like what their intentions for everything were. But, you know, when you just watch the movie and you don't work on it and know every minute detail, I think it is like not it's definitely not as access, uh, accessible as the first film. Um, but right, everybody like, loved making these things. That's cool. I was the, the, you know, like you, you said the, the first Matrix Matrix was so accessible. Yeah. And was even for people who maybe don't watch movies to think or. Right. Like, you know, and, and, and this movie is actively for people who want to, you know, it's for the nerds and it's right. for people who really want to have stuff to chew on and think about and discuss and debate, yeah. which I think is indicative or, you know, I think is true of all their work. Yeah. But. And, and I also find it to be the sort of I think it's I think there's a couple of things also where this these sequels I view in the Wachowski's film career I view these sequels as this transitionary piece between when they were when they made the Matrix. They're like, yeah, guns and fighting and kick ass. Turn before they turned into more earnest filmmakers with things like Speed Racer and Cloud Atlas and and even the Matrix uh, uh, Resurrections. You know where uh, and Jupiter Ascending, where they made these films that are very earnest and about feelings and love. They have this like whole like love conquers all kind of approach to their storytelling now. But with the Matrix, that wasn't that was always there, but it was also along with like kung fu and guns and things like that and, I and the cool like sunglasses and yeah. like the detached and right right totally and the and i think that the columbine shooting and them being like low-key blamed for that in a weird way um i think at all of that sort of like added to this element of like okay we don't want to just do the same thing again we want to like really deconstruct this world and and um deconstruct like what this movie was so that people don't start like they don't they don't uh misunderstand it this time that it's not just about being like badass and killing people with a bunch of guns um it's philosophy and it's big thinker movies um and i think that like they just Stop being subtle because the subtlety of that first Matrix movie, I think, um, you know, they got a lot of negative connotations from it, as we talked about last week with like the whole red pill, blue pill thing. Right. They were just like, yeah, never again. We're not going to let people take advantage of of that. Um, and I think that all of those things start building up here and they're figuring all of that out before we get to, um, you know, something like, uh, I guess, like between. Uh, uh, revolutions and um, uh, Speed Racer, you have um, V for Vendetta, which they didn't direct per se, but like 
direct heavily, with heavily. air quotes. Totally. Like, <laughs> like James McTeague, who was the first AD on the Matrix trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, he did actually bring a fair bit to V for Vendetta, but at the same time, you it's very easy to tell just how involved the W's were yeah. and everything. Like, it was actually McTeague that brought Natalie Portman onto the project. Mm. Because McTeague was also the first AD on Attack of the Clones, and uh, he and Portman got along there. But yeah, so it's it's it. You can see this sort of like transitionary period where, where by the time they're producing um, and sort of like low key directing or co directing that movie, V for Vendetta, that movie is not subtle with what it's trying to do at all, right? And it rules, but it's very much not subtle. And I think that this is the these this. These sequels are the start of that story and like something that we're going to be talking about again with Lana and Resurrections. But here, you know, they're making a movie that are like, we don't want you to just we don't want this to be as accessible as that first one, because accessibility then leads to misunderstandings and people co-opting our our movie and our feelings and and the things that we put our art um for for things that we don't agree to um and uh so there's a lot of like complex feelings i think in this movie about that and i think that's why people have such visceral reactions to them um whether it's like i'm completely aligned with the wachowskis and i love this shit um or uh there's people that are you know completely dismissive of the sequels and they're like oh well they're boring and these are bad um and uh, I'm excited to talk about all the things that people think are bad and sort of um, go into them and explain them and, and figure out um, maybe why people feel that way uh, and what they're trying to do um, instead of uh, it just being boring. Um, but uh, let's 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 talk about it. I mean, that's it. That's all I've got. I mean, you know, we're not really getting into the Animatrix and the Enter the Matrix video game. I'm sure some things will come up yeah. um, with that um, stuff. And if uh, – although – uh, I did, uh, in preparation for this episode, watch both the Animatrix and uh, a, vi- a YouTube video of all of the Enter the Matrix cutscenes. <laughs> um, uh, how'd that work out? It was incredibly useful. Yeah. Which, especially cool. since you're you're tackling the rundown for the story for this, I bet it was oh, absolutely. Yeah, but like it, it's really cool how useful and essential those Mm -hmm. two things are Mm -hmm. to making this a whole experience but also goes back to how unabashedly challenging this whole thing is yeah yeah one thing that blew my mind because i also watched um the animatrix i did not watch the enter the matrix but i watched the animatrix and the the thing that blew my mind in that was that like the kid right who's who's in this that we're introduced to in this um he has a short film on the animatrix and the way that he leaves the Matrix is by jumping off a building, mm-hmm. which we never return to until Resurrections, which is like a thing that they bring back in Resurrections or that Lana brings back in Resurrections of the idea of like leaving the Matrix by like committing suicide within the Matrix. Um, right. It's kind of crazy uh, how that was set up in the Animatrix and brought back. No, totally. Yeah. Uh- Maeve, did you are you a fan of either of those other like you know the end of the Matrix the game or the Animatrix? 
I have seen the Animatrix. Um, it's definitely an anthology film. I like some more than others. Like I think yeah. the matriculated segment that ends the Animatrix. I think that is just flaming hot garbage. But mm-hmm. I love to like basically everything else. Uh, my favorites being the Second Renaissance and uh, the one with the glitching house. Uh, my friend oh. uh, yeah. and colleague on Luton Bus, Adam Pilfold Bagwell, wrote a really good piece about that segment. Mm-hmm. And it is just stunning and just absolutely joyous in every way. And as for the video games, uh, I mainly know them by reputation. I haven't dug into them, but I did see that clip from Path of Neo where the W's showed up as, you know, like little 8-bit sprites to explain why they changed the ending of Revolutions for the game. And it was just... <laughs> Maybe the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like no, yeah. It, there's something kind of. I, I remember like watching the game cutscenes and watching the Animatrix. This series or this franchise could be as sprawling and big as something like Star Wars or the MCU or 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 whatever. But it's so willfully difficult and weird and challenging and funny and horny that. <laughs> it just kind of keeps itself from being too popular. And I just think that's really cool of it as the yeah. years go by. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's get into the rundown on, on, uh, on. Absolutely. Uh, so we just cut to it immediately. I always love hearing that opening fanfare, mm-hmm. uh, that Don Davis brass. Oh yeah. Uh, we get the code of a clock as all of these like guards, uh, of like an energy plant or checking out, which is a really strange detail. So are all of these guys getting their ass handed to them by Trinity while off the clock? If so, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not even getting paid for it. (laughs) None of it is, but is that covered if they're off the clock? I don't know. Well, they're on company grounds. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good point. And it's, it's really cool. I like how they up the ante of the Trinity cold open. It's, Sort of opening, but it's kind of opening by playing the hits a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm like, look, we know why you're here. You're yeah. Trinity being the coolest person in the history <laughs> yeah. of movies. And then we get uh, her jumping out of the building, firing the guns in slow motion, really upping on the like anime imagery. Yeah. Using, and I think it's really effective. I think that effect really ages well. Yeah. Of her like jumping off the building in the slow motion. It's it is really good, but I will say, um, I've always thought this, like, why are the agents such bad shots? Because it's not like she can dodge the bullets while falling. Um, you know, and so it's it's interesting that they're just they're just missing her uh over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh the, she smashes on the ground and then Neo wakes up from the dr- the vision that he was having, the dream vision. <laughs> What's that? What's that meme where it's the two little dogs and one's like a little pathetic dog and one's like a wolf? Oh yeah, <laughs> I right. was thinking like um, agents in the first Matrix, agents in the Matrix sequels. Yeah, true, true. Oh, um, man. But yeah, Neo wakes up. It was all a dream or maybe a vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, we meet Link, played by the great Harold Perrineau, mm-hmm. taking the place of a dearly departed Tank. Which is Dozer. solely because the actor who played Tank was an asshole. He wanted a lot more money and was just generally being a dick about it. And the response of the production was, no, 
go away. Yeah. Uh, I think, I believe he even went so far as making a, a feature documentary about the whole process of him, like, like coming to Warner Brothers for more money and losing the part and stuff. Wow. Huh. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, and now it's Harold Perrineau. Yeah. Um, it's great. Maybe he always should have been. Who knows? He's a great addition to the cast. Yeah. No, I like him a lot in this. Um, I I do. And uh, I, in general, I like a lot of the additional characters um, that are like brought into the sort of vast ensemble in this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, in this first scene of Morpheus with Morpheus, we see something that I thought was really interesting on this rewatch uh, where the events of the first Matrix, like Neo defeating Agent Smith and becoming the one has only further like hardened Morpheus's faith and like emboldened him. And he's even more like uh, righteous than he was in the first one. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, it's it's an interesting place to take Morpheus as a character. Um, however, highway the highway sequence notwithstanding, I feel like across both films, Morpheus doesn't get a lot to do, and that bums me out a little bit, especially in 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 Revolutions where he's both basically just sitting co-pilot or standing behind somebody like the whole movie. <laughs> I haven't. I'll have to see what how Revolutions fares, but I think Fishburne does a lot with a little in Reloaded. Yes, I agree with where, that. Where, like, when he is given the ball, he looks like the coolest person alive for sure. But it's sparse. Yeah, yeah. But he's very monk-like in the sequels. Hmm. Um, yeah. Maeve, are you a fan of Morpheus in the franchise? Uh, yes, very much so. Fishburne <laughs> portrays the character wonderfully, and I do get what you're saying, but also. In Reloaded, he has the whole cave rave start speech, which is absolutely incredible. I kept, I keep kind of half expecting to start screaming, can you dig it? Well, <laughs> the whole time, but at the same time, it's such a fun performance as, as usual. And of course, when the highway fight happens and it is the best scene in movie history, you know... He just kicks so much ass there. It's worth it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait to I can't wait to do a breakdown of the whole uh, highway scene. Oh, just fun. wait till we get to the Burly Brawl. I got a galaxy brain take on the on the Burly Brawl. Oh, oh okay. Nice. So excited. So uh, we meet in the Matrix. Uh, there's 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 a meeting of the captains of different ships and different crews, including Niobe, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, mm-hmm. who is the one of the protagonists of the Enter the Matrix game, mm-hmm. along with her co-pilot Ghost, who is also at this meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, not Ghost, not to be confused with the Ghost Twins, who are also ghosts. Right. They are ghosts, <laughs> but they're twins. But ghost they're twins. is not a ghost. His name is Ghost, and he's not a twin. <laughs> um, yeah, I... So- I Jada Pinkett's uh Jada Pinkett um at this point she you know as we talked about in the last movie she was a massive fan of the first film and just constantly gave her husband shit about not taking the neo role um because she was she was uh totally on board um with the with the movie um right from the get go and wanted to play Trinity um but uh that ended up not working out and um when she was offered this role she was like seven or eight months pregnant uh and 
they offered her the role and they're like, you would start training, you know, at this point. And uh, it was something like, like three or four weeks after she would give birth. Um, and so she was just like, she said yes. And she was like, I can't wait to get this baby out of me because then I'm going to be in a Matrix movie. <laughs> it was just like so uh, excited uh, to get into the training and um, everything for uh, being in this movie, she was like so pumped to be Niobe. Um, and uh, I imagine is certainly one of the reasons why um, they immediately went back to her for um, uh, resurrections. So um, she just, uh, she rules in this. She's given it her all. She loves this shit. Yeah. Maybe speaking of doing a lot little, are you a fan of Jada Pinkett in this and Niobe? I mean, I'm a fan of everything in these movies. So yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, in the final flight of the Osiris, the final short featured in the Animatrix, uh, a crew of the of the Resistance, uh, the, called the Osiris, they discover in the real world that the machines are digging straight down into Zion, mm-hmm. and they'll be there in a manner in a matter of days, if not hours. So the crew of the Osiris die getting this message to a Dropbox that Niobe and Ghost picked up in the Enter the Matrix game. Mm-hmm. And now we're in the Matrix Reloaded, and Niobe's like, the Osiris crew died getting us this information. The machines are coming. They are drilling. We're we're boned. And Morpheus is like, no, we're not boned. And he comes in with Neo and Trinity and asks the crew to leave one ship behind because they've been ordered by Harry Lennox, uh, Commander Locke, back in the real world. Just like, everyone go back to Zion. All hands on deck. All ships return to port. And Morpheus is like, I need one ship to stay behind in case the Oracle calls. <laughs> and i like how half of the people there are just like god damn it morpheus we're sick <laughs> you, of your shit all the time with the oracles and the messiahs and the, it's really cool to see morpheus's conviction and like mission in context of the rest of the crew how there are people that are kind of more uh grounded mm-hmm uh, but it's cool, and we get to see. It kind of expands the world a little bit. I really like seeing the different crews and the different costumes and styles. Yeah, no, it definitely does. I, and and the thing that I love about that is just like in the first movie, the only person that isn't on board with Morpheus's shit is Joey Pants, right? And so, like, and like Joey Pants is like actively a bad guy in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's nice to see people who like are like no. All you're fucking crazy. Like this is crazy shit. Yeah. Uh, no one has these like powers or whatever. Like this is ridiculous. Um, there's no such thing as prophecies and things like that. And uh, you know this is the real world, um, motherfucker. <laughs> and it's and it's. I just I really love that energy. Um, adding that energy to like you know ha- letting us question Morpheus a little bit more. Um, in terms of like in the last one, we weren't sure if Neo was the one or not, right? And and even is told that he's not the one. And now in this one, we're like, okay, he's the one, but like, what does that really mean? And it does all, you know, is all are all of the prophecies going to come true? Why is Morpheus so devout? Um, and is that the right way to go, or is Harry Lennox right? And we should be uh, focused more on saving real lives in the real world. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's cool and already giving and I don't know, like the, the background cast is so cool. Like, I, I love the one captain who's like, you know what, Morpheus, I'm going to do it just because I want to see what Locke's going to do to you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just 
kind of like in a Star Wars way where you can fall in love with like background characters that have like one or two lines. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, the meeting is interrupted by uh, Agent Smith who uh, knows that Neo is in there and wants to give him a message and it's his headpiece in a little package. Because mm-hmm. he's unplugged. Uh, he is unplugged. Agents arrive and we get my f- the first great fight scene in this movie. Yeah. Um, upgrades. Yeah. It's just a great fight. And it's a great just way of up like updating the audience of being like, hey, this is where Neo's at. He's just t- taking on three agents and it's like nothing. Right. Right. Um, but well, not nothing because they do. They do have the upgrade. So he is getting hit, you know, as right. opposed to like at the end of the Matrix where he's just like one handed taking down Agent Smith. Um, now it's like there's three agents and and, you know, he get they get a few licks in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That almost kind of makes it more badass in that it's like, as he's like, just like dodging everything, it's like, oh, they updated. You guys are, are better now. And like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, and then he flies. Maeve, what do you think of the flying effects? Great. Awesome. Cool. 10 out of 10. <laughs> uh, just there's something about the wavy, how he's like bending reality itself before he launches in the air. That mm-hmm. is part of my galaxy brain take on the Burly Brawl, by the way. <laughs> Okay, cool, cool. I'm gl- we're leading up to it. We're like breadcrumbing the... <laughs> Perfect. This was a big deal in 03 because we hadn't even... This was even before Superman Returns where flying itself, flight was a real novelty in live action movies. Yeah. I remember when they were talking about who should direct the Superman movie that they were developing um, at the time. I was hopeful for the Wachowskis because, you know, I was like a dumb... <laughs> 19 year old kid and like i still would love to see the wachowskis direct a superman movie but um you know it was more just like oh i could see that they did flying and so they should do superman um which is like a very silly like you know young kid take on uh who should direct things but um yeah i do remember i do remember thinking that for sure the wisdom of a child yeah exactly So the Nebuchadnezzar returns to Zion, and I don't know. I love Zion. There's something really hopeful about a beautiful place, like a sanctuary, existing hundreds, if not thousands of years after the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And that someone like Link could find this underground cave place, like beautiful and home. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's an impressive set. It's It really feels transported. Like It kind of feels timeless to me, almost kind of like Rivendell or something. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's also, as we'll learn, um, hundreds of years old uh, because That's Zion true. has been around for like so many generations of, of uh, Zion uh, civilizations. But yeah. Yeah. Like I have questions and we'll get to it with yeah. the architect scene. But like how old is the Earth? Like how what where are we on the planet's timeline? I believe we thought it was 2100, but it's been 2100 six times. So... <laughs> It it is actually something like twenty twenty six or twenty seven hundred, um, yeah, two thousand seven hundred, something like that. Man, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> nuts, <laughs> nuts. The Nebuchadnezzar lands uh, in Zion, touches down. The crew gets out, and we meet the kid, who, like Scott said, in a short in the Animatrix, uh, leapt to his death in the real world. Uh, in the Matrix. Of- in the Matrix. Yes. Uh, I should say. And then woke up in the real world. Yeah. And uh, owes it all to Neo. And Neo's like, no, you saved yourself, which is what he says in the short. So it was, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I guess he's in the story to show how Neo's presence in the world has affected other people. Mm-hmm. 
and is he's gathering disciples. Yeah. He can't he can't stop from freeing people. Um, you know, even yeah. when he's not trying. Uh, well, yeah, he, he gets this kid to free himself. And then later we learn that that uh, bug frees herself. Bugs frees herself because she just sees Neo. Right. And she like, snaps out of it. Yeah. So. And uh, and we find out in the next scene. Yeah. Like Scott mentioned, uh, Morpheus is meeting with uh, Captain Locke, Commander Locke. And he's like, we have freed more minds in the last six months than we have in the past six years. Mm hmm. And like I attribute that to Neo and the One and people's faith in the prophecy, and Lennox is like, "That's stupid. Like we can't put we can't strategy we can't put our faith in Neo in a prophecy. Like we need strategy and logistics." Yeah, I remember thinking that Locke was a really frustrating character when I was a kid. Like, no, he's the bad guy, but like, man, Lennox is such a badass in this. Yeah, no, he's great. I mean. Harry Lennox rules, right? In general, um, and and he's just so good. Like, there's no, there's nothing like him. Just the way he holds his mouth, which is such a specific thing. But it's like, I, it's just, it's just the most. Like, oh man, he just rules. I mean, it's, I, I feel like the way that he holds his face is how he became such a big time actor. Because like, you just instantly, you're like, oh, that guy's cinematic. Like, I can't keep my eyes off of him. And in the cutscenes of Enter the Matrix. He has a lot of like scenes with him in Niobe at at her like apartment or cave or whatever. Yeah, and it really humanizes him, and we get to kind of see his affection for her, and kind of makes him a more well rounded character. I think if you played the game. Oh, okay, that's fun. Yeah, and so uh, the councilman comes and and during all of this, and is like, "Hey, like Morpheus, what do you think? Do you think we should? There's going to be a big gathering tonight." How much should we tell people? And Morpheus is like, tell them, tell them every, tell them everything. Tell them the machines are drilling because they won't be afraid because like, we got this. I have faith. And the councilman's like, God damn Morpheus. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody like you. Uh, uh, and then back in Zion, we get that scene where like, you know, very messianic, but like, you know, people, uh, people in the real world are in Zion are waiting for Neo with like gifts Mm-hmm. And like, please watch over my son. Please watch over my my sister and whatever. And Neo's like really uncomfortable. He just wants to have sex with Trinity. Yeah, <laughs> he's a simple man with simple needs. <laughs> uh, um, I think I remember a criticism of this movie. Even I think when I was a kid, is Neo and Keanu are very distant in this movie mm-hmm. compared to the first one. But I think it's moments like this, like when he's just making out with Trinity in the elevator, but then it gets interrupted mm-hmm. that I still think humanize him, even though he is so presented. So Christ-like in this movie. Yeah. I Not mean, that, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think the, that I, statement is weird. I, 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 I hear what people's criticism of that is. Um, I mean, I just think that there's more going on there. And I think that, I think that what I see in his performance is pressure um, mm. in terms of like, I can't act too human because all of these people are counting on me. And if I just act like a normal person, um, you know, I might lose their faith, but also I'm super uncomfortable with all that faith. And so I just feel like it's a lot of like mixed emotions that result in um, what appears to be a stilted performance. But I feel like there's, there's a lot of thought going into what that what 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 Keanu is doing with with Neo. What do you think, Maeve? I mean, Keanu is brilliant 
and people didn't catch on to that brilliance until fairly recently in the grand scheme mm-hmm. of his career. Like you go back through his performances, like the ones people make fun of tend to be the ones where he was doing what he was directed to do. Like, for example, you have Bram Stoker's Dracula, where he everyone makes fun of the accent. But honestly, in terms of like how he's carrying himself, how he's delivering his lines, that is very much him being directed to do the heartthrob thing. And I think he's better than in that movie than a lot of people give him credit for. And a similar performance uh, at a similar time, Kenneth Branagh is much ado about nothing where Keanu is Don John. I think that performance is straight up great. Because he's playing Don John as sort of an angsty teenager who just wants to sow discord for shits and giggles. And Keanu does that perfectly. And Much Ado About Nothing is a comedy. It works in that because it is inherently a comedic performance. Yeah. So yeah. so it's like any so like whenever people complain about Keanu being stilted, I feel like it's part that he's a very collaborative actor who puts a lot of stake in his directors and also in that he's always doing so much more with body language than people are giving him credit for. Like his stuff with Neo, he sells everything so well with the uncomfortableness. Like he wants to have his normal life. He wants to just be with his girlfriend and just chill. But of course he can't do all of that. And he's kind of suffering from all the expectations being put on him and not just by himself or by Morpheus or by Trinity, everyone around him, like almost every encounter he has with somebody is him in the movie is him dealing with an expectation someone has for him. Mm-hmm. Like with Smith, it's the expectation that they are, that he is to be his great big damn nemesis with the people on Zion. It's obviously, they think he's the Messiah with the Merovigian. They think he's just some fucking cocky ass guy who needs to be taken down a peg. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we have Persephone, Monica Bellucci, who sees him as sort of like having what she can never have in her relationship with the Merovingian. And that's the whole thing with their scene where they where she demands a kiss and mm-hmm. whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like even people who don't believe in him have those expectations, too, of like, oh, you're the one you're the, pe-, you know, fuck you. Like, yeah, he just he's like embattered from all sides. Yeah. And I also think in a. Um, you know, uh, uh, a trees versus the forest sort of look at the performance as well. Um, I I think that the Wachowskis were directing him to be a little stilted, um, just for what their plan was with the whole concept behind the programs. Um, and you know that's some that's an aspect of the of the sequels we haven't quite gotten to yet, but. I think that there there's an important um, uh, element of his performance that has to do that's like a direct line from what he's doing, what he's being asked to do as Neo versus um, what how the programs are being asked to direct and what the story of the the two types of characters are. Um, so I think I think there's some elements to that as well. But yeah, I think that he's way better than anyone gives him credit for in this movie. But I think that in order to properly um, appreciate his performance, I think you do have to dig deep and really, you know, on 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 understanding what the sequels are trying to do in general. Um, and not a lot of people uh, take the time to do that because it's a lot of homework. <laughs> and then, uh, but. 
uh, before homework, we get uh, a big party. Yes. As the kid alluded to, uh, more ships have landed than anyone can remember. Everyone has gathered into Zion, into this big canyon at the center of the city, where uh, Morpheus, as Maeve alluded to, Morph- Morpheus gives this incredible iconic speech about. Uh, it's I mean it's kind of like it's kind of the Belushi Animal House speech in a way where it's like, <laughs> this is our time. We're alive tonight. Let's show those machines. Let's shake these canyons. Like we're here. <laughs> and it's it's great it's really stirring and it's it really you know I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it by the time we get to part four but in a lot of ways fishburn is revealing himself to me to be like the heart of this whole franchise and the trilogy mm-hmm. and you you buy how he could move this many people and like i've always loved the little the the choice or the edit to when the councilman is introducing morpheus he's barely able to get morpheus's name out before people like erupt into cheers and it, I don't know. The scene feels so alive to me. And I think there's more life in this, you know, the, the gathering, what we call the orgy scene, the dance party, mm-hmm. there's so much life to this. And it reminds, and you could, I, I, you know, as in a, like watching this now, the Wachowskis are showing us like, look, this is what we're fighting for. Mm-hmm. This is what separates us from the machines. And it's crazy how many, how few big blockbusters do something like this when so many of them have world ending stakes in them. Yeah. This scene was definitely the scene watching it in theaters that I was like, okay, this is going to be different. <laughs> I think <laughs> this is not going to be, uh, you know, just the matrix too. Um, this is going to be, they're doing something else with this. And I think this is when I first started sort of like trying to analyze, like knowing that I'm going to have to like really open up my brain and watch this movie with like a critical eye, you know, as, as at 18, um, and I think that that's one of the reasons why this is this is so unexpected. This scene that I I think this was like when I when I was like okay if I'm if I'm determined to like this movie and I am um, I'm gonna I'm really gonna have to like focus up and 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 pay attention because um, you know I think that they are working on a different level than they were on that first one. Um, and I also think this is the first step of a lot of people jumping off the ship immediately. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately. Maeve, what do you think? Cave Rave is just straight up transcendent. One of (laughs) many bits in the movie where the Wachowskis are just going full bore, doing all sorts of absolute crazy shit. And the Cave Rave is just so joyous, so beautiful. It's something that I almost cried watching it uh, Mm. when I cried out when I watched it the last time. The reason... Audiences, I think, were so uncomfortable with the rave cave in 03 and why it was such like a, a like, whoa, what is this? Is watching the scene, it reminded me how few, especially American movies, I guess, because that's like the main country that I watch films, like, you know, is, is how rare we do, we like have sexually joy, like sexual scenes or joyous scenes or scenes that focus on like sensuality and love and like physical touch and stuff when you think about like, Especially now with the MCU, people talk a lot about how like sanitized those are, or how, or how, or how, or how sexless those are. I mean, in the right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like you know, we just we just get to see Neo and Trinity just enjoy each other and love each other and just have like fucking really great sex and it's like romantic. And I'm like, wow, it is crazy how like I could I can't think of very many big action event tentpole films with like I don't know just living with your two leads like this for a few minutes. 
Yeah, it is interesting because the idea of of like sexuality in 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 big budget movies, like I agree that, um, you know, there hasn't been. There's certainly not enough sexuality in in big budget things right now, um, and I think like largely it has to do with like the four quadrant thing, right? Um, however, uh, I mean, I'll even say that like I don't think that a a big like iconic kiss. I mean, I talk about this all the time. One was the last like cinematic iconic kiss, and it's like. I can go back, I think, all the way to, like, the first Spider-Man movie, The Upside Down Kiss, and I can't think of another one that has, bit, has like, permeated pop culture to that level since then. And that was 20 years ago. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, that's kind of crazy. But on the other hand, I think about all of my, my asexual and aromantic friends who love that movies are not as sexualized as they used to be. They're so much more comfortable watching films now than they were before. So, you know, it's, it's a real, like, it's a real, like, you know, um, um, push and pull in terms of like, yeah, I do wish movies were more, more, uh, uh, had more sexuality in them. But I also know, um, you know, I have friends who that stuff, makes them uncomfortable and I don't want them to feel uncomfortable, you know? So it's, it's sure, tricky. It's, valid. It's, tr- it's tricky. And then we get a scene that definitely I uh, wasn't ready for when I was 12 years old, but was really digging this morning. Uh, Neo is uh, staring out. I think, I think maybe we get uh, Smith jacking into the matrix before this might be after I literally just watched this. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, it is. Yeah, we get that scene where uh, Neo, or I'm sorry, Smith absorbs a member of the ship that stayed behind, Bane, right. and then picks up the landline, gets into the Matrix. Oh God, Smith will suffice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and plus, I think weird. that actor was literally hired because he did a he did the weaving impression at the audition, and they were just like, "Okay, hell yes, it's you." That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, that's great, and that 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 uh, Hugo Weaving gift really comes into play in part three, and I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, the, um, the the whole concept of Agent Smith being a virus in this film, um, being sort of a, a manifestation of a virus or a representation of a of a computer virus, is like really interesting, especially in the way that they portray him opposite neo as like as like the opposite like neo's opposite you know it's like neo is the one for people but then for humans but then he's the one for like programs i guess an anomaly yeah an anomaly um and i just i love i love that comparison and then also as we'll get into it the generational comparison then backwards to um the merovingian and the oracle um, and how they were sort of like the OG version of that, only flipped because the Merovingian is bad. He's like if Neo went bad, and the Oracle is like if Agent Smith went good. Um, and Interesting. I just I love wow. all of that shit. Like that's so cool. <laughs> Never thought about it like that. Yeah, but you know those two characters specifically. Um, and then we get uh, uh, that uh, the scene in the where, where Neo is like looking out at the night sky? Question mark. Mm-hmm. As uh, the councilman Hammond, I think his name is, uh, is like, yeah, I hate sleeping either. I was I was asleep for the first eleven years of my life, and I'm like, oh right, Neo was like super old to get like unplugged, right? Um, 
and we get a conversation about so like the, the councilman takes neo down to the engineering level where no not a lot of people go to and he's like look at these machines like we need these machines to survive they make our heat they make our, our water our electricity you know do are we do we need them or do they need us and he was like well we can turn them off and the councilman's like that's very true we could turn them off so we have control over them but if we turned all these machines off or destroyed them we would die right and i just found this to be really cool as well as like you know food for thought and kind of just the matrix kind of reflecting on itself was kind of a cool seed planting of things like Sebebe and and the role the machines play in resurrections. For sure. Um, I also think it is setting up some themes that we dig into with the programs um, because I think that like, you know, there's, there's specificity, like the story specificity with each of them, each of the program characters that we meet. But I think the thing that I find interesting about watching it this time was those themes sticking out, I think, more than ever because they're so heavily brought up in Resurrections that watching it this time, I was really taken with the concept that humans are free in the real world, but they're entering the Matrix with the desire to act as programs, right? Because that's what they do they're 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 bending the matrix to their will right but programs are the ones that can do that not humans so they're acting like programs and so you go into the matrix and you go to these meetings and they're a little sti- stiff and stilted they're like they're putting on like a facade that is very program like and then you meet these programs who them themselves are very stiff and and otherworldly right and they act like not humans. And it's the reason that I think a lot of people have problems with these movies, um, with the sequels is because the programs are being directed to like have very little emotion. Right. And, and that's not always the most interesting thing to watch on screen. Um, especially if you don't know the purpose behind it. Right. But their whole thing, and you look at the Merovingian, right. They're programs who are like learning to be humans. But then on both sides of those, it's like you've got humans acting like programs. You've got programs acting like humans. But in both cases, they're proud of their of where they come from. So the humans acting like programs are proud of being humans. And the programs acting like humans are proud of being programs and hate each other. And it's just like the Wachowskis being like, you guys are all idiots. You should be working together <laughs> um, and and building a society together. And it's just... So smart and subtle, and I love it. Wow. Uh, Maeve, any any thoughts on all that with the programs? I mean, yeah, that's basically dead on. Yeah, that's cool. I I guess, uh, yeah, the Merovingian being like, because right, he is, along with the Oracle, he is very like loose and comfortable in his own skin compared to the other programs. Right, because he's been around Um, for so long. Yeah. Yeah, for 61 million years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, the Oracle. Uh, so what Bane and his crew, you know, sacrificed themselves to get is a message from the Oracle telling Neo, hey, return to the Matrix. I'm finally ready to talk to you. Because this whole movie, Neo has been like, I just haven't heard from the Matrix, the Oracle in a long time. I want to hear from the Oracle. It kind of reminded me of like those first few Harry Potter books where without Dumbledore's aid or call to arms, Harry Potter was like super restless and uncomfortable. Right. He wasn't like ready to chart his own course yet. Yeah. And uh, they return to the Matrix and we meet uh, another program or we'll talk about it. Uh, this character, Seraph, mm-hmm. who uh, in Neo's Matrix vision, we see that Seraph's code is 
golden and bathed in light. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just, this is my second. I love, I fucking, I love this fight scene so much. It blew my little brain apart when I was 12. Yeah. And I still love it. Um, but let's talk about Seraph. Yeah. So Seraph, so originally this, they, they wanted Jet Li for this. Um, and Jet Li turned it down because he was super uncomfortable with the technology because from his perspective, I fight for a living. That's what I do. And if you can just use me to recreate my choreography and my, the, the thing that I make money doing in CGI, eventually I won't serve any purpose and I will lose my career. And he was uncomfortable joining the matrix because of that. Um, which I thought was like his likeness. Yeah. It was a very interesting, I've never heard somebody back out of a movie for a reason like that. Um, I found that really interesting and it's so funny seeing that like in a lot of ways he's right as we've got, we've literally got movies starring dead people now. Um, and that's real weird. Uh, and, and so in a lot of ways, Jet Li was right. Um, but, uh, this was written for Jet Li. Um, he, uh, turned it down. Um, but, Seraph is interesting is an interesting program because he is essentially like a sign in screen. That's like his representation because that's what he's doing. He's like, I have to wow. check that you're you. So yeah. like, <laughs> I'm going to fight you to prove Are you that a you're robot. You. Yeah. That you're you. Um, and like he, yeah. Like I'm, I'm not a robot. He would yeah. have to like check the, I'm not a robot. Point all the, <laughs> click on all the pictures of a bus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah the famous, this... the famous David Sims take about Seraph being yeah. a login screen. Yeah, um, it's it's really it's really interesting that uh, uh, I don't know. I love that all of these all of these programs have like real world components, I guess, to them. But we're like giving them a personality and a take. Well, yeah, well, the Oracle says it herself. Where like you know, there's a program for the rain and the breeze and the the air and the, and the that's the same. That would be the same program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they have a. But I, I've also heard. Is this fan theory or canon that Seraph is a past incarnation of the one or a previous version of the one? I don't know. Have you um, heard of that, Maeve? Uh, no, I haven't heard that one. Um, I'm going to guess that one's a fan theory. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't really see anything in canon that supports it. Right. Yeah. Because I know the, the, the story with Seraph that is canon is that the Merovingian like saved him from something and then was like, Hey, I want to use you to kill the Oracle. And he's like, that seems evil and not cool. I'm actually just going to bail on you and be the Oracle's bodyguard from now on. Um, Mm. That's kind of the, the story there, but I don't know what his purpose was in terms of like what the Merovingian was trying to do against the Oracle. Um, I'm not sure what Seraph brought to the table because I'm not sure in the mythology of the Matrix what he, um, I guess, what his purpose is. Uh, Maeve, do you have any any thoughts on on Seraph? Well, Colin Show is a incredible underrated performer, and I'm glad he got this. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I do. I, I'm now a fan of the David Sims uh, Seraph is a long end screen theory. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, uh, and and programs are also kind of the main topic of Neo's conversation with the Oracle, the the life cycle of a program. That when a program is considered obsolete or not useful anymore or dangerous, uh, the program is given the task of returning to the source 
for, I assume, deletion uh, or like eradication. Mm-hmm. And some programs uh, choose exile instead. And among these programs, we have things like vampires and werewolves and ghosts mm-hmm. and um, programs like the Merovingian. Right. Exile, which is the program equivalent of freeing yourself from the matrix, essentially. Like, you know, as a as a like a human being is plugged in the matrix, takes the takes the red pill, frees themselves from the matrix, wakes up in the real world, and the exile exile is kind of like the equivalent of of that, of like I don't want to just be sacrificed to the you know, to the, the to source. The, the source and and be and cease to exist. I want my freedom. And so I'm going to, I'm going to choose exile. Um, I just think that's really interesting. Yeah. Maeve, is that all check out with your understanding of all of this, of this mythology? Uh, yeah, basically. And cool, cool, cool. also love Gloria Foster. So great. Yes. Yeah. Once again, just really bringing this prose to life, bringing what could be a giant info dump and, you know, taking what could be that and making it very lyrical and ponderous and yeah, just what great performance. And, you know, she's going to be uh, recast in the next movie and as well as already recast in the end of the Matrix game, which was interesting, like timeline wise. Yeah, because mm. I, I think she passed away like very soon after filming her part for Reloaded. Mm-hmm. Gosh, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, she she was um, they said that watching her was like watching her work was one of the craziest things to experience because she was like on death door filming this. Um, but as soon as they said action, it was like she was uh, she she didn't feel anything again um, and was just giving it her all. And then, then they call cut and it would just be like watching someone on their deathbed again. Um, and it was it was kind of they were like it was it was crazy to watch her um, do that- this because she was struggling and you can't tell at all. Yeah, that's it also reminds that reminds me of our Spy Kids episode where Robert Rodriguez was like, yeah, Ricardo Montalban was yeah. able to compose himself and be like very like, you know, Grandpa Cortez. And then as soon as just he was just saving all of his energy for like the, the time between like action and cut. Yeah. Yeah. Which is. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so the, the Oracle tells Neo, hey, you have to return to the source. Like that's your heading. That's where you need to do. But you also have to choose between. You might have to choose between Trinity living or dying. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, man. <laughs> and the Oracle's like, I know. <laughs> it's, it sucks. And then, like, the the second that uh, Sarah from the Oracle leave, uh, Smith appears. Right. And uh, we get the preamble to the Burly Brawl. We've already kind of talked about it, where Smith was given the choice between deletion and exile. And he was like, this is bullshit. Like... I don't, I feel something in me that it wasn't there before, you know, the, I, the, the compulsion to disobey. Mm-hmm. And now I'm here because I fucking hate you, Mr. Anderson. <laughs> and, and more than that, he's, he wants to, I, I don't, I mean, might not get into this until revolutions, but his super objective is he just wants to be everything and everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, he just wants to, he wants to take over okay. the matrix basically. And uh, Maeve, we've 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 hyped it up long enough. What's what's your what's your take on the Burly Brawl? Okay, here we go. <laughs> All right. So first off, the Burly Brawl just fucking rips. It's got an incredible score behind it by Don Davis and Junior Reactor. It's 
just so much great choreography one after another after another making the sequence was insane there are so many hugo weavings digital and otherwise in fact you just they just keep getting added and as the scene gets more and more insane we you notice a shift towards cg body doubles after a point mm-hmm. and this is where my take comes in because this is probably most certainly not what was actually meant by that choice at all but it came to my head the last time I watched the movie, and it is, and it never left. I spring this take on anyone I can, and they usually react with some form of bemusement, but here we go. Basically, my take is that the fight gets so insane that it starts shorting out the Matrix's server, and everyone becomes a more base version of the computer program that they actually are. The fight is so wild that it starts downgrading the quality of the Matrix, like <laughs> trying to watch a 4K video and like dial up internet or some shit. <laughs> I love it. It's great. That's amazing. I love that. It's like when you run into Cyberpunk 2077 arms blazing and all of a sudden people are doing the T-arms and like yeah. spinning. <laughs> that's That's the first... Uh, that's the first time I've ever heard a take like that on the Burly Brawl, and it rules because it makes the weakest part of the Burly Brawl actually a strength. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's perfect. I love that. And my thought, that's that, that's amazing. And it kind of, I, I almost feel like it ages better now because I think at 03, we were really prickly about things looking like a video game or not looking real. Mm-hmm. You know, like, ah, you're lying. That's not really Keanu Reeves. I can tell. I I could tell. So the movie loses. Mm-hmm. And I think we live in a world where, like, everyone knows that Thanos is a digital effect. And, like, Gollum and, like, the last hour of Endgame is a digital effect. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, and this is me just theorizing. I can't prove this. But maybe, like, a 12-year-old or a, someone watching it today would be more... Uh, a leaving of like it not looking like photorealistic Keanu Reeves when he's like spinning. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the bowling ball effect a lot. <laughs> the sound effect. Yeah. yeah. The W's have always had like a real earnest, corny sense of humor to them. And the bowling ball effect is that to a T. Yeah. Um, have either of you ever seen the uh, opening to the 2003 MTV movie awards? Uh, the Will Ferrell parody or whatever that was. Yes. Uh, I, it pops up in my YouTube recommendations from time to time, but I haven't watched it. It uh, it came with the DVD of this movie. And so I've watched it a lot and they're inseparable to me where I, I can hear the Sean William Scott, Justin Timberlake quotes like in the act in the cut of the actual movie. <laughs> uh, That's great. It's pretty great. So the uh, Neo escapes. He flies away. He gets unplugged. And I've always loved the like, oh, so he, so there's more of him. And he's like, yeah, a lot more. Like still kind of dazed. Yeah. Um, and then there's a council meeting where two ships, the council asks two ships to leave the fleet, leave Zion to go find the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar because they've been uh, MIA for like several hours now. And the, um, the vigilant, the crew of the vigilant, Soren, the captain of the vigilant volunteers. And uh, after some, Gap, some drama, Niobe, and the Logos crew volunteers, much to the chagrin of her BF, uh, Commander Locke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm a sucker for this shit. I'm a sucker for all the crew Zion melodrama of like, 
who among us can we need one crew to do this you know yeah yeah it's like really star trekky in some ways mm-hmm. yeah i mean no so. i mean it's not pristine in the way tos or the other trek shows are with their i guess showing off their spaceships and their fleets and whatnot but it does feel like it and also you've got cornell west as one of the zion elders which is one of the most <laughs> galaxy brain pieces of casting and the whole thing it, i couldn't believe that <laughs> like there's like philosopher commentaries that were on uh the original matrix dvd set and mm-hmm. have been on all the movies since uh i have one friend who tried to listen to the cornell west commentary and he bounced almost immediately <laughs> he was like no nah, i can't i'm good <laughs> um yeah i will say i think that i think one of the reasons that i love um resurrection so much is because you know i've always wanted to really enjoy the romance that is in the matrix movies but i find it largely very stilted um until resurrections where i think that it's like very open-hearted and 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 big and romantic um and so i that's what i love about that movie uh i don't buy any of this <laughs> Henry Lennox, <laughs> Niobe, Morpheus stuff like this love triangle thing. I just was like, I don't. I it, it, there there's zero chemistry between these three people. Um, I was gonna I, say, who do you who do you buy more? I between... would actually buy more that Morpheus hooked up with Harry Lennox than okay than <laughs> um, than anything to do with. <laughs> that's Niobe. your galaxy brain take. Yeah, I um, mean they probably did. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Zion's got no rules. That's true. Um, but you know, it just, it doesn't, I've just never bought any of this and they drag it out over these two sequels and it just, I, I'm never sold on it. Um, so I wish that worked a little bit better than I think it does. Maybe it works for other people, but it just, it doesn't work for me. Well, how much do you buy the Link and Tank's sister romance? I buy that a little bit more. Yeah. I like that more. Best best line of the movie is "Where's my puss?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, and that's a good point because, like, a hey, great line, great moment. But and I, I think Link and Z in that one scene are given they're just so much more human than even uh, Neo and Trinity are allowed to be, mm-hmm. and it's just a real breath of fresh air. I think of just like, wow, these are really I really relate to these two characters. This seems like a really human, grounded relationship. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, um, speaking of Z, I guess we should talk about the fact that, um, Z was originally supposed to be played by Aaliyah. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, that, that obviously didn't work out, um, after she died in 2001 in that plane crash. Um, and it was, she died in the plane crash while they were filming. I was, so, yeah, they, they had shot some footage of, with her. yeah. So there's, there's like, there's like three quarters of her scenes, um, that exist with Aaliyah in that role, and then they had to reshoot it all with with Nona Gay. Um, right. But uh, she's good. Nona Gay is really great. Um, and, but I'm sure that Aaliyah would have been would have been awesome as well. Yeah, and Gina Torres popping up for a hot second. Yeah, true. I is this where they met? Um, her and Lawrence Fishburne because they're married. Oh, I did. I don't think I knew that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they've been married a long time. Uh, and I think, I think this might be where they met was actually on, on, on the matrix. 
which is Chris Burton was just there every day, just doing pull ups. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If I want and then we meet the Merovingian. Um, this was also a challenging scene when I was a child and kind of like was like able. To, oh, cool. Uh, the Merovingian has a, a very different philosophy worldview than Morpheus. He doesn't believe in choice. He believes in causality. Mm-hmm. Things cause other things. Mm-hmm. With a few lines of code, I can change the, the course of this woman's whole afternoon mm-hmm. with a single bite of my cake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the orgasm cake, the absolute, the absolute goat. <laughs> yeah. The, the zoom in of the code version of her body is incredible. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. It's audacious. Sure. It, it definitely is. Um, I love this shit. Um, I love I love all the programs. I love the Merovingian. I love the causality thing because, of course, that's how a program would view view all of this. Um, in in terms of uh, how the world works, because programs are experiencing things different than humans. Humans experience one thing after the other, and programs are seeing things like kind of all at once. And it's it, and I think. Yeah, that's super valid because I think the biggest criticism for this scene, especially in 03, was it's just the Wachowskis navel gazing. It's just ponderous for the sake of being po- it's pretentious. But like you said, it's so rooted in character. Like, right. This this is how this character, the Merovingian, would think because of who he is. Right. And it's all about comparing programs to humans and how they have they're they're similar but different. You know, like that's that's the whole point of all of this is like you guys went to war with the machines and now we're going to make three movies where you're trying to win the war with the machines while we are trying to prove to you that they're they deserve to live just as much as you do um it's just that you're both going about it the wrong way and and that's it, it it's so interesting to me but i think that making all of the programs so inhuman which is a really interesting artistic choice, right? It's like they really did look at, like, think about, like, okay, if computer programs were people, how would they act? And they figured that out and had the actors do that. But I think to audiences, general audiences watching this movie, they're just like, it's one boring character after another because they're not taking into consideration what they're representing, but also, calling the Merovingian boring is just a straight-up lie, because Lambert Wilson <laughs> is having all the fun in the world. And yeah. he's having a bit of a moment, because Benedetta, he shows up as an antagonist, oh. and he just completely kills it. And oh. then, of course, he has his little Resurrections cameo, which is so fun. Yeah, yeah. no, you're right. And I uh, I mean, like, the part, he has such a ball with these words, like the... You know, cursing in French is like wiping your ass with silk. Uh-huh. Great. Yeah. He's yeah. uh yeah. He's a he's a he's a fun twist in the world, this like kind of refined scoundrel that can be crude and eloquent sometimes in the same sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just really interesting that like from an I, I guess it's an interesting look at exposition, you know, because it's so funny because you we literally have stuff like um uh, cinema sins now that is all about like they didn't tell us exactly how this thing works uh so this movie is actually bad uh regardless of how good it really is um and and then you but then you have this movie that's like explaining everything but because it's doing it in this artful way that comes out of character people they they just their brains just turn off like it just like there's a certain 
portion of the audience that just can't connect with this stuff um, because it does feel it can feel like homework, I think, to, to, to certain people. Um, me, I'm all in on the homework. And so, like, I, I love this shit, but I could see why people wouldn't be into it. And so uh, it's a Merv. Uh, he drank too much wine, so he must take a piss. He <laughs> takes his leave. And uh, the the <laughs> I almost called the group the Trinity. Uh, <laughs> Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus, they head down. I, I love the moment where uh, like Neo and Trinity are like, oh, what did we do wrong? Like, what should we do now? What are we going to do? And Morpheus is like, nope, everything happened the way it was supposed to happen. And it's all going to work out. And then Persephone's like, if you want the keymaker, come with me. And just that tiny little moment of Morpheus, like, still got it. Like... <laughs> It's Ugh. yeah. It's uh yeah. Like it is. It is like small, and you know. But like the moments of humor and lightness in the movie, I think, really work. I think you know the character moments really work. Yeah, yeah. Monica Bellucci is so good in this movie too. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I feel like she. I feel like she's underrated as a performer because of her sex symbol status. But mm-hmm. when you get to see her, it like in this character, she brings a lot to it. Simply by Absolutely. virtue of having movie star presence. And also, mm. I believe this is the second movie where she got the kiss Keanu. So congratulations Ooh. to her. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah because she, familiar she, with she, the was, other one. she was one of the brides in the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. Oh, whoa. That's right. I wow. Which I is also maybe the movie. horniest studio movie of all time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like I, I ended my 2021 by getting high and watching that movie, and it was an experience. Yeah, wow, I've never thought about watching it at New Year's. I just, <laughs> I just did it because, like, I took an edible. I was looking for something I'd already seen for before. I scrolled past that and was like, "Yep," and yeah, there it is. Wow, okay. yeah, Keanu appearing in multiple like horny tent poles is not an accident. Yeah, <laughs> and. I think presence is a great word. I, you know, and like Monica Bellucci, what I remember even watching it the first time is you really feel the history, her history with the Merovingian. They really feel like two Greek gods that mm-hmm. are just live together and are constantly like fucking with each other just because they can and they're immortal. Yeah. And I think the same otherworldliness that Keanu has, Bellucci also has. So like them together is electric. I think that's, I think that's a big thing with how the Wachowskis cast all of the program roles, because you go back to the first matrix and the two main programs that we get to know are the Oracle and agent Smith, both phenomenal presence. Right. And then you get to here and it's like every program we meet has like presence first and foremost, like that's their main focus. I feel like, um, and it's, it rules Monica Bellucci's so good in this. Uh, and, this is where we get her sort of like low key talking about the Merovingian being kind of the original, the one um, in, in that she's like, he used to be like you uh, and now he's like this and it sucks. <laughs> um, and, I, and I miss the way he used to be. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it, it's just, uh, it's really fun the way that they build the history of, you know, the, of the matrix um, not, not so, you know, we have like the second Renaissance that builds the sort of like pre matrix world and the history of all of that. But I think that what's interesting about this movie, um, these, these two movies is the way that they, through these scenes with the programs, we start learning more about like what the previous 600 years in the matrix was like. Um, 
And I, I find that really interesting. Like, was the Merovingian the one in the version of the Matrix where everything was perfect before they were like, oh, we have to bail on this. We can't, it can't wow. be perfect because they, they all reject it, you know? And in a world where these movies made, like where everyone loved the Matrix trilogy and it was, wasn't divisive at all, we were just all on board with it. We will, I, th- I like we could have gotten like a, a prequel trilogy about previous iterations of the matrix true yeah because reloaded and revolutions were originally pitched as one movie and then the wachowskis wanted to make a prequel but wb said no and wanted two sequels instead mm-hmm. because trilogies yeah yeah and then before resurrections they were like developing a morpheus prequel and oh is that the one that zach penn was writing yeah uh we all know that would have just been complete dog shit so we're happy it didn't get made <laughs> mm-hmm because it was sure. like, oh, Happy we're going, it. oh, we're developing this with Michael B. Jordan in mind. Zach Penn is writing, and it's like, wow, this all sounds fucking terrible. <laughs> so basically, we should be like, not to say like, like because Resurrections came out of Lana's grief for her parents and coming back and wanting to tell another story with Neo and Trinity because she, I guess figured she could do that to help work out her grief and i just like i feel like this is going to sound ghoulish but honestly thank god lana got the idea well yeah it's it's just crazy what like you know what things can come from like the hardest times of one person's life can lead to creating something that is so full of life and joy Mm -hmm. um yeah like the final 15 20 minutes of resurrections are simply are just simply put some of the best shit lana's ever done yeah, yeah. I don't. The, what, hearing you, the the Zach Penn Morpheus prequel movies. I mean, it makes me think like, oh, that's what Warner Brothers wanted in in Resurrections. That's what they yeah. were trying to make. Yeah, and yeah. now WB is out here saying that they'll give Lana free reign to do whatever she wants, basically whenever she asks. Which I feel like is partially like damage control from the HBO Max thing, causing them to lose so much oh, of their staple. Sure, but at the same yeah. time, they had already started to lose their reputation as a as the studio that lets the directors do what they want and mm-hmm. now they're it feels like they're overcorrecting a bit and it's leading to just some absolutely crazy auteur shit like malignant this past year hell yeah <laughs> uh which is absolute perfection after the merovingian <laughs> we get uh the werewolves oh so i remember thinking like wow that flew right over my head that there were werewolves and vampires in the matrix you know wow they really hide this stuff they flat out like it's a it's a oh, silver bullets like that like those are werewolves it was it's so much more clearer than i thought it was yeah yeah and Bellucci just does that so does delivers that line so well like yeah. I, like i remember Bellucci's delivery almost as much as the line mm-hmm. yeah it's and it's it's uh i remember it's like one of the few bursts where the movie is really r-rated because you get an actual headshot to actual blood Mm-hmm. So they meet the keymaker, kind of what Scott was saying of like immediately there's a presence. Yeah, that we've this got, actor has. Yeah, it's like Randall Duck Kim, who yes, great prolific character actor, and he's here doing like a solid, like almost comedic performance as the keymaker, mm-hmm. and it works. Like the character, like has a lot of levity to him, but he never feels like a joke at any point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's never cracking wise or they're never cutting to him for humor. Just him reacting to stuff. I guess the uh, the dissonance of him in this crazy leather latex bullet world. 
Yeah, because he's just yeah. running around in like an apron with like a billion keys, and he looks just completely frazzled. But also he, but also he's able to get people whatever they need. Mm-hmm. Right, he's really useful, and he's not complete. He's, he's not raising a fuss. Yeah, he's like he's okay. On- I get to get okay. I get to avoid this French guy forever. Rule this rules. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I gotta I gotta ride on a Ducati with Carrie Ann Moss. Okay. Well, let's do it. Whatever we gotta do. And then we get the Chateau fight, which fucking rules. Mm-hmm. I love the Chateau fight. Um, I didn't have a chance to look it up, but the 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 act the stunt person in white looks a lot like Tiger Chen. Tiger Chen was in that scene. That was where Keanu met Tiger okay. Chen. Great, awesome. Tiger Chen, star of Man of Tai Chi, directed by Keanu Reeves, which is a lot of fun. And I also, Tiger Chen shows up again in Resurrections as one of the exiles in that fight, and he's credited as M O T C. Yes, as in Man of Tai Chi. That's uh. I. I didn't get that he's still the Merovingians on the Merovingian squad. That's really fun. <laughs> yeah, though he is definitely done up to look very different. Yeah, different program. Maybe an upgrade. And like, uh, yeah, I just, I love this fight. A really cool use of just like wire work. Um, minimal CG compared to the burly brawl. Maeve, what are your thoughts on the Chateau fight? Oh, it rules. It's also got the iconic shot of uh, Neo stopping all the bullets times two, which is still yes. my YouTube avatar after all these years. And it's just an incredibly fun, super well done fight scene. People just keep grabbing weapons off the wall and it just... You just see all sorts of new crazy shit. And as that's going down, Neo and, I mean, Morpheus and Trinity have the Keymaker, and they're just trying to get away from these ghost fucks who have (laughs) the world's worst white boy dreads and are doing their damnedest to. And that, of course, leads to the freeway site fight. I mean, the freeway scene, which just. I say this about everything in this movie, but it's the greatest thing ever put the film. It really is. It's absolutely incredible. Like, um, there are bits in the Matrix sequels where the action just goes full James Cameron, and that is basically the freeway fight and bits of the Zion battle in Revolutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cameron's a great pull, especially for the for the freeway chase, because there's a propulsion and acceleration that just does not stop for what feels like half an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they spent months filming that because of how wild it was. And it was all done like on some like freeway outside of San Francisco or something like that. And no, that's where they that's where they trained to do it while they built a freeway, a one one point five mile loop of freeway. Um, they just like built like a and it never feels set. like a loop of freeway at all. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, there's like chapters to the freeway chase. You get. Um, you get like Morpheus fighting the agent on the top of the truck. Mm-hmm. You get uh, the samurai like taking out Morpheus, taking out the twins is the coolest thing ever. You get the initial yeah. car chase. You get the motorcycle bit. Yeah. Trinity like riding a Ducati again. Yeah. And the yeah. ghosts are like phasing in and out of cars. Yeah. The phasing is such a cool power because when he was fighting in the car with Morpheus with the butterfly knife, which is also insane. Like the rules are that if he goes invisible, he can't hold on to anything. Right. So like losing that corporeality means that he can't like keep holding on to the key maker. So it was just a cool like push and pull of a sequence, I think. 
yeah like yeah. this is all so complicated and it's so meticulous <laughs> and it all plays out like super clearly on screen and that is just what they were always able to do at the height of their powers like Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas, Jupiter Ascending, these are all also very complex movies that are done very meticulously. And people knock Jupiter for what I think are mostly nonsense reasons, because I think that movie, as do all the Wachowski movies, owns. So, and, like, if Jupiter Ascending was a franchise, I'd be here on this show talking about it right now. But, like, they are always able to take complete chaos and do it in such a way that it you never once question what's going on at all and that's something i've heard people keep talking about as a problem with resurrections that really that i don't see as a problem because lana has changed as a filmmaker and in a lot of ways has changed as a result of her transition where pre-transition she'd storyboard everything meticulously and now mm -hmm. she's a lot more freeform about it doing a lot of the camera op stuff herself and it results in stuff that's interesting in its own way. But of course, it's a years later sequel to a series of films with such a defined, well-known aesthetic that people were always probably going to be thrown off by it. But also, I love it and want more of it. I think it also comes from um, just, you know, working, uh, being a working filmmaker for 20 plus years you don't need to rely as much on storyboards and things because it comes more naturally to you, you know? Um, and so I think that Lana is just a more confident filmmaker uh, than she was making these. Um, and it's, yeah, you don't have to like show up with a game plan every day because you know, like, well, I'll, I'll get it. Like I'll, I'll figure it out. Like I know what I'm doing, you know? Um, and so that's, that's really fun to see that, that transition happen um, as a, as a, you know, a technical um, filmmaker. You know, when you're, when you have a favorite band for like a decade plus and you know, that band is still putting output or, you know, putting albums out. Sometimes, you know, I can listen to an album that my favorite band just put out and being like, I can appreciate this, but I would be a fool to, you know, want them to sound like they did in 2006 or 2008. Mm -hmm. um, the Freeway Chase is my favorite track on my favorite album by my favorite band. Uh -huh. Where it's just like, yeah, I never, oh my God, they were just really firing on all cylinders that day. Yeah. Or the span of months. Yeah, it's like, <sighs> I think Resurrections is the only Matrix movie where my favorite moment is not an action scene. Because my favorite uh, scene in the first Matrix is the Neo Smith subway fight, which is just still one of the best hand-on-hand -hand fights in American cinema. And my favorite bit in Reloaded is the Burly Brawl. Um, and my favorite bit in Revolutions is the climactic brawl between Neo and Smith, which is the best superhero-style action in any live-action movie. I will fight anybody who comes at me on this. He will bop bop around an entire city, <laughs> creating yeah. a torrent, a, a ball of water and wind. Yeah. It's the most Dragon Ball Z shit I've ever seen captured on film. That's for goddamn sure. Certainly more than Dragon Ball Evolution. Sure was. <laughs> Which also has That's, Randall uh, Duncan. Uh, Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so the, uh, yeah, so Neo comes, rescues Morpheus, and then we get... Uh, another scene with all the captains together or some captains together 
where uh, the keymaker tells the the humans that there is a door inside of a hallway inside of a building mm-hmm. that leads to the source of the matrix. And we kind of get like a little mini 15 minute heist film mm-hmm. of these like tr- a triangulation of like, okay, this crew has to be here. We have to be here. We have to be here. And we have to make sure that this power plant is destroyed and that the backup generator doesn't turn on to make sure that like the power is out so that we can go into this door. I probably butchered that. <laughs> um, but honestly, I remember it. You're so exhausted after the freeway chase mm-hmm. that you're kind of like just. Okay, I don't know what you're saying, Keymaker, but I'm 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 down. Yeah. And uh the vigilant is destroyed mm-hmm. during the um the heist, and so the crew dies in the real in the real world, so they die in the matrix. And Trinity has to jack in, and that's where we get to like the cold open of the movie of her like taking out those highway guards. Right. Neo, on the other hand, takes a very different journey. He travels to the source of the Matrix itself and meets one of the most polarizing and divisive film characters in maybe the last 30, 40 years, the architect. Yeah. The creator of the Matrix. Which I I will which oh, I just please. want to say at first, this is an iconic performance. Like mm-hmm. this guy, I for I, I forget his name right now. It's I don't have it pulled up, but he has such a distinct cadence and look to him. I just love watching this guy. And for the record, like everything else in this movie, my take on it is that it rules. The architect is being so purposefully obtuse to try to like drag <laughs> Neo into what he wants him to do. And the TVs of Neo just like flipping the guy off and yelling bullshit, that all rules. Like there's a great clip of the W's directing uh Keanu shouting bullshit and just screaming and being a madman and mm-hmm. they are so into it having so much fun and that's the thing like it's a very visually interesting scene in a lot of ways like the doors between parts of the matrix that lead to the architect there's a there's a fight there with some of the smiths and that is also a very entertaining fight where morpheus almost becomes a smith and very true skip right over that and overall, I just, it does so much so well. And the twist is, well, twist is so artfully done. And it leads to the movie's emotional catharsis, which is Neo defying God, bringing people back from the dead, Lazarus ass shit. This, it's, it's why people make movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it, like you said, it is kind of Neo's emotional choice of he's faced with a problem he thought he had conquered in the first movie. He is faced with the realization once again, that he is a tool of a larger system that he seemingly cannot even touch, let alone unsettle and destroy. And he chooses once again to rebel and give that system, the middle finger for love. Mm -hmm. And yeah, which is kind of like the heart of this whole of this whole series, even like, you know, resurrection solidified that, but like, you know, the hints are there and the, the seeds are there for this being ultimately a love story, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it is interesting. The, cause the first film is such a basic, you know, on a basic level, it is, it is a hero's journey. 
um, very specifically, right? It is sort of like built out of that structure. Um, every step of it is in that first Matrix movie. So it's very comfortable. It's a very comfy movie as a result because it's like it's it's all of the story beats that you kind of come to expect from that type of story. Uh, but the sequels are this meta deconstruction of that, that hero's journey um, and what it means to be a hero on a hero's journey and like what that even, what does that even mean? You know? And like here you have this guy who designed the matrix telling Neo that like, you are the hero in so much as I write you to be the hero. Um, and that because humanity needs one and then we reset because you make the quote unquote right choice. Uh, and then, you know, we reboot the matrix and it all starts over again and we've reached that point again. And this is how this is supposed to go. Uh, and you know, the fact that the one has never had Trinity has never had love before. That's the thing that diverts everything. And yeah, it is exactly what we've been talking about, about the Wachowski sort of turning into these very earnest romantic filmmakers, um, that, I think general audiences were not expecting going into this or revealing themselves to themselves to be very like, yeah. earnest romantic filmmakers. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I just, I, yeah, I love this shit. I think it's great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like Maeve said, he defies God. He restarts more. He restarts Trinity's heart with a single punch. Uh huh. She, she's back, but they're not out of the woods yet. Back in the real world, the machines have like, I love their little circle bomb throwing animation. Mm-hmm. I love it every time. Uh, so they, they, they drop bombs on the Nebuchadnezzar. It's destroyed. And going back to Maeve's Star Trek comparison, the death of the Nebuchadnezzar is treated like a moment. Yeah. And it, it hit me. Like the first time I was like, I didn't even realize I cared about the Nebuchadnezzar that much mm-hmm. until I saw Morpheus's heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, is that Lame Miz that he quotes? I dreamed a dream. I think that's right. Yeah, that's. I think that's Lame Miz. Of course. <laughs> uh, Maeve, were you bummed to see the Nebuchadnezzar explode for the first time? I mean, yeah, like they lived there. It, yeah. It's it's where Mouse uh, got everyone to fuck the lady in red. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they've had some good times in that. Yeah, seriously, everyone on that ship in the first movie fucked the lady in red. That's just that's just that's just how it happened. <laughs> That's the subtext, man. For some reason, I just, I know pre betrayal that Cypher was a good hang. Probably. Yeah. Like he's like a dude. I'd, I'd have a beer and watch a Cubs game with, Uh-huh. Yeah, which is basically his character it. in sense. <laughs> oh, cool. I need, that's on my list of shame. I need to watch sense. Yeah, I do too. Um, I'm not picturing just two, just like, like, like tank and, uh, Cipher staring at a Matrix screen, but it's a it's a Cubs game, mm-hmm. and they're just reacting to it. <laughs> and then we get uh, the cliffhanger. Uh, so the crew of the the Vigilant uh, was oh no, there was another ship. The ship that Bane was on, Bane aka Smith, sabotaged the ship, and that's the reason the plan didn't work. And the machines are still drilling their way to Zion. Mm-hmm. And the final cliffhanger image is that uh, Bane, Smith, and Neo are uh, plugged into the Matrix together or, like, in the room together. They're just, they're just unconscious together. They're just unconscious together. Yeah. Because cause, uh, cause Neo um, uses his one powers to take down the, 
the Sentinels. Yes. In, in the real yeah. world. He is able um, to. And Morpheus sadly does not see that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Could you imagine if he did, though? <laughs> like he, probably he, for the best. Yeah, he would have refused to talk about anything else. <laughs> yeah. He would have been insufferable. <laughs> uh, uh, Scott, what, what, what do you think of this cliffhanger? I don't think it works. Um, I think that they probably should have found another cliffhanger. Uh, another another way to end this movie because the problem is we don't spend enough time with Bane to immediately recognize that that's who that is and so I think that a lot of people left the end of this movie like well what who the hell was that like what what was that because it's literally been like an hour I think since we've seen Bane in the movie um, at that point and so like uh, no offense to the actor playing him but like I forgot what he looked like. I'll be, you know, like it was a lot of stuff happened. Yeah, a lot of stuff happened between last time we saw him and now. And so, like, I don't think it, I just don't think it totally works the way that they think think or want it to um, in the moment. I think, uh, I think that they could have found another way to uh, conclude this movie or, or leave us with a, with a solid cliffhanger for uh, revolutions. Maeve, do you have another perspective on it? It rules. <laughs> <laughs> It rules. Uh, I there's a quote that I remember reading. I think I think it was I think it was just Lana Wachowski, and it might have even been for promotion of Resurrections. But she said that when she was growing up, um, her favorite part about watching a movie was the conversation she would have with her family at dinner that night of her parents asking like, "Well, what did you think this meant?" or like, "What was that about?" or "How did this make you feel?" And I feel like that is kind of like the, I, I think about that quote a lot when her movies or when their movies collectively challenge me. And I keep thinking of like, Oh yeah. Like you would, you would turn to your friend and be like, who was that? Mm-hmm. Who is that? Suppo- it's supposed to be the guy. Like, it, and then remember, Oh, I do remember. Oh, Oh no. They're in the, and like even the parts that maybe don't work are meant to even inspire conversation or the parts that are difficult to understand. Like, Oh, even the, like, I don't know. I thought about that quote when that mm. moment happened. Interesting. Like she wants you to have a conversation and talk about like what this could mean or. Right. Yeah. And then we get calm like a bomb, which is like a a rage, like a rage against the machine track. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like the whole credits of reloaded is just soundtrack stuff. Like it's just a lot of cool industrial stuff. Remixes, electronic remixes of things. And then a Dave Matthews song. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah what uh isn't there like a is the pod song on reloaded or on resurrections i mean i'm pretty sure it's reloaded because reloaded had the most packed soundtrack outside of the first film and yeah. if i remember correctly all the credits music and resurrections is don davis stuff oh okay yeah because like i think i think the the POD song is like the single off the album and they, it had some ridiculous like matrix inspired music video, um, with, with POD, <laughs> um, which is, uh, fascinating. Um, but the 2000s are great. Yeah, man. Like I miss tie in soundtrack shit. Like I just watched all the twilight movies again for the second time in 12 months. And <laughs> I love the soundtracks to those movies so much. And like mm-hmm. one of them was like a group live watch with a, with a group of friends, including a friend of the show, Zachary Luna. And I was just like being like, okay, so this is the soundtrack cut by this guy. And this is the soundtrack cut by this band. I was doing that the whole movie, basically. 
and mm-hmm. yeah it's just like it reminds me like how great those soundtracks are and how great people can use like needle drops in films even if they're selling oh, a soundtrack yeah. because like, definitely and i think oh no please because like the baseball scene in twilight would not be complete without that muse song true yeah and muse was so such a part of even like the books like stephanie meyer wrote to a lot of muse's music and it just so it just feels so natural and like i think like the matrix those soundtracks really create the mood of the world and make you feel like you can take the mood of the movie with you in your iPod or CD player. Yeah, like the Dracula remix drop in the first one is iconic. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're just we're just coming off of our Twilight mini series. So the Twilight uh, saga is uh, very uh it's it's on the surface of our hearts right now. Yeah. And uh, I, if I if I knew about that, I would have j- tried to jump on for that too. Like I recorded a pilot, <laughs> oh, like no. I report, like I recorded a pilot for a show with a friend, and we spent so much of it talking about Twilight, even though, um, even though the movie we were talking about was not even remotely connected to it. <laughs> Another great, and the hardest part for me of making those episodes was choosing the outro song. Yeah, every, every week. Yeah, because like yeah. the credits for the first Twilight, it's just Radiohead, then Linkin Park, then Paramore, and it's just the most iconic shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that brings us to the end. There was, I uh, if I remember correctly, there was like a post-credit tease to Revolutions at the cinema. Uh, yeah, it was yeah, the first it, trailer. And it's yeah. still on streaming and on the blue. It was the trailer for Revolutions. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm glad they kept that. Yeah. So well, it's got it's got big uh, uh, Back to the Future Part 2 energy in that way. <laughs> yeah, because it ends, concluded. Yeah, well, because it ends with that trailer for Part 3. Very true. For the, like, they're going to the West this time. <laughs> it's like, it's going to be raining in the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Strap in, everybody. Yeah. And so we close the book on The Matrix Reloaded. Uh, Maeve, thanks so much for being here. Such an enlightening conversation. I think we both learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Any Any closing thoughts on Reloaded and the series at large? Like This is a series that, even before I knew I was trans, was so important to me. And these are... Like, it does feel like, like, it's kind of a cliche to say it at this point, because every, because the Matrix is a trans allegory reading has picked up so much steam over the years. But this is a truly trans franchise in so many ways that me and so many people connect to, like, even outside the most basic readings, like, you get to Resurrections, and it's just all doubled down on. And... Mm -hmm. Like, without this series, there's a lot I wouldn't know about myself because, and I wouldn't, like, and without the Wachowski filmography, there's a lot I wouldn't know about myself, really. And because, like, even, like, like, I do think they're geniuses and all their films are masterpieces, like, especially Bound. Like, I think that's the only one I haven't worked into this episode yet. Bound is, <laughs> Bound is a miracle. Um, uh-huh. And there's actually a Easter egg reference to Bound in, in Resurrections. Oh. oh, I'll have to check it out. I'll have to look for it. Uh, yeah. And Reloaded is a very interesting piece of that because it's not because it's not so like you like you can map the trans metaphor onto the first film in a very easy way, and a lot of people have. And with Reloaded, it becomes a bit different. Like you can read it as like a Jesus metaphor, and it can be, but like. Neo is in fact trans Jesus. That's just how it is. And 
even when you like break through like cis normative expectations of like who you have to be um there's still a lot of stuff after that to work with like gender does not stop evolving with the first uh revelation that you are different like it your your point of view just keeps changing and changing over the years and all you have to do is just roll with it and be happy with who you end up being and i think that's an integral part especially with resurrections of the film like of the series what i read into it and overall yeah whole series 10 out of 10 great movies we'll watch a million more times I think, no, yeah, I, I, please. Oh, I was going to say, I think that trans reading on Reloaded is really interesting from the perspective of like the, all of those scenes of expectations that people are putting on Neo. And I think that there is the Wachowskis are, are like exploring that, I think, with Neo, which I think is really, really interesting. We talked about it last week. That iconic ending of the first Matrix is Neo flying towards the camera, promising to liberate everyone. And it's such a fist pump, like, oh, man, like moment. And the show in the sequel that even Neo is still not done learning about himself and having these revelations and like it's still he's still on his journey. And I think that's a really cool place to take your hero considering like what that hero means to so many people for so many different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I have to say. All right. We will Uh, be back next week with the Matrix Revolutions. Maeve, where Uh, can people find you on the Internet? Well, I am on Twitter way too much, and my handle is at I am a something. I tweet all sorts of dumb shit whenever I actually post. Like, I'm on there every day, but I don't post every day. So, yeah. All right. And uh, thanks for listening. Thank you to our patrons. Check out the Dueling Genre Patreon. Got a lot of fun stuff there. We'll be doing our franchise potential pretty soon. That should be a lot of fun. But in the meantime, uh, stay safe on the uh, on the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stay safe. Plug in. That's what Neo's catch. That's catch catchphrase, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.